Last Sunday, I shared how Paul begins this letter to the believers at Thessalonica in a very traditional first century Greek letter style in which his salutation includes the three common elements of the sender's name, in, in which in this case there are three, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the addressee that happens to be the church of the Thessalonians, as well as a greeting in which he says, Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. But I also hope you remember how quickly he provided a trio of terms. Faith, love, and hope, which appear together often in his letters. In Thessalonians, however, each of the terms is connected to a particular response produced by it. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in all our prayers, remembering before God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I shared how in the original language it, it literally reads your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And I also pointed out how Paul is not referring as much to some special action which the church has taken. But it seems that he is looking more to the general nature or mood of the lives of the Christians that are there before him. And these three phrases provide, I think, a valuable tool for you and I to conduct a, a spiritual self-assessment. Do we have a faith that functions? Is our love that which labors to reach out to all people regardless of race, gender, and or social economic status? And do we have a hope that enables us to endure the tough times and, and the brutal experiences that come our way? Or, as Paul will stress later in this same letter, do we grieve as others who have no hope? I think today's text, which is both chapters 2 and 3, though I'm not going to read both chapters, uh, I think it's of particular significance for Mother's Day. Since our topic is about sharing ourselves and the gospel. I hope you realize, and I don't know specifically the history of this church but I know the history of many many others that many churches across the land would be closed today if it were not for faithful women and women's organizations that kept the doors open many people would have no knowledge of the love of God were it not for faithful mothers who shared not only themselves but also the gospel I want to begin with an image. Uh, I've been listening to this podcast, the same one, over and over. 
And one of the things that the, the minister says is, he, in each of his sermons, he begins with an image, then he talks about the need, and then he gives them the subject matter and goes into a, a preview of the text, the text, a summary, and then uh, an application. I, I, I like the way he went about it. Uh, because we are so image-driven, aren't we? Robert and Helen Lind, husband and wife sociologists, produced what is actually a somewhat famous study titled Middletown. It was published in 1929. As it turns out, it was a sociological study of nearby Muncie, Indiana. And they described it as the, the every, every man of the small American city. Their study indicated that little had changed between 1925 and 1935 despite the intervening onset of the Depression. And as it pertained specifically to Christianity, they found that the majority of churchgoers during that time period remained middle-aged women and their children and grandchildren. And that continued to be the trend, by the way, into the 40s, through the 40s, and, and into the very beginning of the 50s even. These women were the spiritual leaders in many homes and in society. And I think more than any other time in my life, we need spiritual leaders. We need them in our homes, and we certainly need them in our society. And so with that as an introduction, let's look at the first 12 verses of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not, might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how 
like a father with his children. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word today. Our text began with the word for. And that word, when it said, for you yourselves know, it it kind of links the previous narrative section that goes all the way back to verse 9 of chapter 1 with what is now before us today. The introductory section of the letter. And the verses that we just read, Paul, Paul shared with us, I think, a snippet of the nature of, the, of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. And he did it in two phrases. In his commentary, John Stott notes that chapters 2 and 3 provide an insight into what he calls Paul's pastoral heart. You hear that, Pat? Paul's pastoral heart. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Pastoral meaning shepherding, caring. I've gotten on Pat too much for her calling me pastor. Because I need to be a shepherd, one who cares, one who watches over the flock. But notice the imagery imagery that he uses. Yes, Paul is a steward. And yes, Paul is a preacher or a herald. And yes, Paul is a spiritual father. He states that he worked among them like a father with his children. A father with his children. But did you also hear Paul, who many say has a low and despicable view of women, though I certainly don't agree with him, Paul describes his relationship and the manner in which he worked among them in very endearing terms. Speaking of himself, ministering to them as gentle and like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I can honestly say that I was lucky to not only have a very loving a very warm, a very caring, a very providing mother. Oh man, when I was in school, she packed me three sandwiches, uh, chips, uh, some kind of fruit, uh, a sweet thing, and then she gave me money to buy four milks uh, all the way through my schooling so that I wouldn't have to eat that lunchroom food. But I also had other women in my life who were supportive, encouraging me as a young reader. One of the ladies in the church at Claremont, Indiana, where Dad preached, was a teacher. And each week, she would bring me a Hardy Boys book. And as long as I had read the one she gave me the previous week, she would trade with me. And I read the whole series of Hardy Boys books when I, we, we moved from there when I was only 13. I had already read all of them through with her encouragement. But I had women who nurtured me. Nurtured me through some pretty turbulent and rough years. 
And like many of the women who have been so instrumental in my upbringing, as well as significant mentors in my spiritual formation, the first eight verses of this chapter that we read give a picture of the extent of Paul's sharing of himself. And for those of you and for those of us who have been involved in any form of ministry, I think it's hard not to be touched and challenged by what Paul writes here. True, he was an apostle and we are not. I think again John Stott has expressed something that many people need to hear and take to heart when he says, we have neither seen the risen Lord nor been commissioned to be His eyewitnesses nor received a special inspiration of the Holy Spirit to teach with authority or contribute to the New Testament which were some of the distinctive privileges of the apostles of Christ especially the twelve and Paul. Yet I think the concern and the care of Paul and Silvanus, who is actually also Silas, if you've heard that name, Paul and Silas, uh, and Timothy, I think they provide an excellent model for us to copy. Think about the historical background for a moment. I, I ought to use this as an oral exam and call on those of you that came to Wednesday night as we did the book of Acts. But think about how in the book of Acts it tells us that the mission in Thessalonica had been brought to what would be for many people to be considered an embarrassing and disgraceful end. The public riot, the legal charges against Paul, they were so serious that they were persuaded to make a night flight to get out of Dodge, as we used to say, in the middle of the night. And I'm sure that Paul's critics took full advantage of that in order to undermine his authority and the authority of the gospel that he had proclaimed. They, they would have used that to discredit him. And I think from what Paul has written, they must have launched a, a malicious smear campaign. He doesn't give us very many specifics, but I think we can re reconstruct through his own self-defense. Um, there's no reason not to believe that they would have proclaimed that he ran away, not to be seen or heard from again. They would have questioned his sincerity, based and driven by the basest of motives. They would have accused him of being just one more of the many phony teachers who made their way up and down the Ignatian Way. You can almost hear their sneers, mockingly proclaiming that when Paul found himself in personal danger, they would say that by his departure, he was showing that he didn't care at all about them. And it seems likely that some of the Christians at Thessalonica were being carried away by this torrent of abuse. The facts of Paul's abrupt departure and his failure to return, uh, they, they seem to fit the accusations. His critics would have sounded plausible. And so, knowing his true reason for departure, 
Why wouldn't Paul find this personal attack extremely painful? And in his determination to reply to the charges being leveled at him, not out of resentment, not out of vanity, he responded because the truth of the gospel and the future of that church were at stake. And chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Thessalonians are in fact his defense of his life. First, he defends his conduct when he was in Thessalonica. And he does so in terms of how he shared his life with them. He says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. And he reminds them how he labored and toiled, working night and days so as not to burden them. He had remained with them. Now let's do a little work and a little toil for a second. Get your hands up. Put them together. Rub them together. Diatribo. Say it. Diatribo. Diatribo. It's a Greek word that means to remain with. And it comes from the combination of words that mean to rub continually, to wear away, to consume by rubbing. And though Paul could have demanded, instead, interestingly, using a word that we also associate with motherhood, he says, his labors among them were gentle, like a nursing mother. I think part of this is obviously that Paul was also intent upon sharing with them a message that revealed the love of Christ. That he had himself had experienced when in his own words, go back and check it, 1 Corinthians 15, 18, 15 verse 8, he speaks of Christ appearing to him personally as to one who was untimely born. A miscarriage that lived. Now I don't really find it striking that Paul would have likened himself to their father. He spoke in those terms regarding his relationship with Timothy, with Titus, and, and even with Onesimus the slave that he was sending back to Philemon. What does stand out, however, is that for the third time, he feels the need to explain to them that he worked hard not to be a burden to them. Even while he preached the gospel of God to them. He loved them. He wanted them to experience, even in a comparatively small way, the love of Christ that he himself had experienced. He believed that he was personally chosen by Jesus Christ that day on the road to Damascus. Indeed. It was deliberately in order to avoid being dependent on them financially that he and his companions worked night and day. A scriptural example of a bivocational ministry. Ministering to them during the day and then we know in Paul's case, we don't know about the others, but Paul had an occupation as a tent maker. 
And it was probably in that way that he was able to pay Jason for his room and boarding that he talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The Christians at Thessalonica would surely remember his toil and his hardship. So, in circumstances where Paul could have made himself a burden to them by asking for money, for a pay, he determined instead to provide an example of the sacrificial and the giving love of Christ by not doing so. Instead of being a burden to them, he had been a father to them by both his example and his instruction. As for his example, he says they and God were both witnesses how holy, righteous, and blameless he had been among the believers. Now, there is a sense in which those three words are kind of synonymous, but each of them has a, a particular nuance. Holy, according to what is often referred to in academic circles as Baghdad, uh, it's Bauer, Art, Gindridge, and Delege, B-A-G-T. Uh, holy refers to being devout, being pious, pleasing to God. Whereas righteous, that's how we deal on a daily basis with our neighbor. And blameless, that would point to our public reputation. Holy, righteous, and blameless. Paul evidently saw his example as part of his loving paternal duty as their spiritual father. And in Paul's case... He found himself urging the Thessalonians to live worthily of God in his kingdom. Even, he says, insisting on it. By the way, the most common New Testament word for preaching is a word in the Greek, keruso. To act like a herald. To make a public proclamation. And that's the verb in verse 9 when he says, we preach the gospel of God to you. And it's the concept behind verse 13 when he says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is. The word of God, which is at work in you who believe. I think there's a deliberate interplay in that important statement between God, us, and you. What you received, Paul says, namely what you heard from us, you accepted as the Word of God, which is effectively at work in you. You see, the message came from God, but it was through the Apostle. To the Thessalonians, yes. But the evidence, it was changing them. Changing them. And Paul commends them for having recognized it as it truly is. God's Word. And for having accepted it as such. And more than that, he actually thanks God constantly that they have done so and adds that the gospel authenticates its divine origin by its transforming power in their lives. 
I'm stepping out here where I do so when I'm going to get on a soapbox. <laughs> How many of you know somebody who lived a despicable life but came into a relationship with somebody who showed them the love of God? And when that happened, they were changed. And they were changed in such a way that not just you, but everybody recognized, you know, that person's different, and it dates back to a point in time. There is no repentance, biblically speaking, if there is no change. We can be sorry about something. That's remorse. But if we are not changed, don't say you've repented of something. That's not what that word means. Repenting, which is a part of the conversion process, means that a decision has been made to deliberately change the way we are living. Not just a different thought in our heads, but a different style of life. Paul knew he was an apostle of Christ. And he knew what his message was, the Word of God. And the Thessalonians knew these things as well. And Paul knew the importance of teaching these new believers the truths that would help them grow in the Lord. And so he dealt with each of the believers personally. Verses 11 and 12. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, he says, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. You know, as, as I deal with you as a congregation, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, and as you deal with me and the other brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't deal with each person here in exactly the same manner. We can't do it. It won't work. And I thank God for people who are willing at times to say to me, you know, you need to reconsider what you did or what you said or, or, or how that person might have received what you were doing. We need each other. And we need each other to encourage one another on a personal basis what applies to me. I don't, I don't need to go to Rich and say, Rich, you need to be a hard worker. Because I've heard his story of his life through his family, through his wife, through his... Man, you want to see... And I, I'm not saying this to embarrass you, Rich. I'm, I'm, I am just honored by what I've seen with how your daughters, when they come home, man, they are on your side, not wanting to be separated. And it doesn't stop when he gets home from work. 
He's never hesitated to go as soon as he got home from work without supper to go with me to go to one of the board meetings at camp or one of the men's meetings. But there are other people that I would be remiss if I didn't say to them, you know, you need to consider getting up and doing a little something once in a while. There are some people that I don't have to say, you know, you ought to be reading your Bible more often. There are others who when they ask questions, it's like, have you ever read your Bible? Paul says, I dealt with each of you one by one and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And as busy as he was, Paul still had time for the personal. The diatribo. That truly communicates the love of Christ. Maybe he was reminded of how our Lord was never too busy to speak to individuals. A woman at a well going against all of what was right in terms of society. While he was a Jew talking to a Samaritan, he was a man talking to a woman, he was a man talking to a woman who had had several husbands and was living with somebody at that time that wasn't her husband. And yet he stopped and talked to him. On the way down the street when people are lauding him and praising him, he looks up in a sycamore tree and what's he say? And to who? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. You come down for I'm going to <laughs> He had that time, that time to set aside a moment. Yes, he preached to the multitudes, but he also he also Diatriba. Finally, I see in our text this morning an important interaction between affliction and affection. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Thessalonica where believers faced persecution and suffering. Their situation explains Paul's choice of words. Affliction, which means pressure from circumstances. Suffered. The same word used for our Lord's suffering. Persecuted, meaning driven out and rejected. Opposed, used of the winds that blow against and hinder progress. And hindered, a word that I think every one of us should know very well. It's a word that pictured a road so broken up the travels blocked. And yet, in the midst of suffering the Thessalonian Christians experienced joy. We're told back in chapter 1 verse 6 that they received Paul's ministry of the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Affliction and affection. And Paul was certainly burdened for his brethren who were going through suffering, yet also he also had joy, and I think that's especially seen in verses 19 to 20, 
It was the fulfillment of our Lord's promise. John 16 verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I'm not going to step over here. Pretend like I am. If you are not experiencing persecution, tribulation, and trials, you are not living the Christian life the way we're called to live it. That is biblical. I can show you verse. We are going to experience tribulation and trials as Christians. And churches do experience growing pains as they seek to win the lost and glorify the Lord. We may not experience the same kind of political and religious persecution that the early Christians suffered, though in some parts of the world today, the persecution is just as intense as it was then. I get a magazine. I got it and looked through it yesterday. It's a magazine about people who are being martyred on a daily basis. Daily basis. And one of the stories in this one was the story about a family who went back and shared the love of Jesus Christ with the people who had murdered their father and husband. Because he had proclaimed Jesus Christ. Yet, as Paul wrote to Timothy, if we are living godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer his, for his sake. And in this paragraph, Paul explained the divine resources we have in times of suffering and persecution. If the church has been founded on the Word of God, as we saw was the case in chapter 1, verse 6, having heard the message of the Gospel, the good news, the love of Jesus Christ, then that same Word that brings us salvation would also enable them, and thereby us, to live for Christ and endure suffering for his sake. Paul was thankful that the saints in Thessalonica had the right spiritual attitudes toward the Word of God. And that is why, and that is how, their affection helped them endure the afflictions in their hour of suffering. By the way, Back in verse 13, Paul actually uses two different words for received, though the second one is translated accepted. The first word simply means to accept from another, while the second one means to welcome. The first one means hearing with the ear, while the second one means hearing with the heart. There's a difference. We have often heard with the ear. But how often do we hear with the heart? The believers at Thessalonica did not only hear the word, they took it into their inner person and made it a part of their lives. Again, it was their affection that helped them endure the afflictions in their hour of suffering. What is it? What is it that we're truly affectionate about? So here's my challenge. 
comes in chapter 3, verses 6 to 13. I think it's time for us to realize that we not only need to be willing to live in a worthy manner for the gospel, but we also need to be sharing the good news. Notice how Paul reminds them in verse 6 as he begins, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, Shortly before Paul sat down to write this letter, Timothy had brought the good news of their faith and love and how they had always seemed to have pleasant memories and, and as a further item of good news, how they longed to see Paul just as he had longed to see them. And these pieces of information overwhelmed him. He couldn't contain himself. And so he breaks out about how in all his and Sylvanus' distress and, and persecution, they were encouraged. In terms of their thoughts as to why their faith should encourage Paul, it was because of how their lives were bound up together. The Atrebo. By the way, Verse 10, when Paul prays that God will supply what's lacking in your faith, he uses a word, katarizo. Katarizo. Catheterize. To stop the harm and to restore, to equip, to complete. It was used in all kinds of contexts. For example, a fisherman repairing his nets would katarizo. A surgeon setting bones would katarizo. A politician reconciling factions would katarizo. And prayer for the increase of their faith was a way in which we could help in the katarizo. Though letters and Zoom calls and even internet services are nice. There is no substitute for the stimulus of face-to-face -face fellowship where we are mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And so as Paul mentions that he had been praying for them all the time, he breaks into prayer again. May, now may, our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. His prayer is expressing three precise and particular petitions. Namely that God would bring them together again. That he would see the Thessalonian Christians once again. And that he, that is God, would increase both their love. As well as increasing their holiness. And so he prays for them to be strengthened. I believe there are no greater stimuli to holiness than our constant reminder of the love of God that was shown on the cross. And secondly, 
the vision of the return of Jesus in glory when He comes with His holy ones to be with His holy ones. That's you and I, the church. Let's pray. Father God, help us. Help us to be the church that You've called us to be. A church that is sharing ourselves as well as the gospel. Thank you for all of the women who have given of themselves. Sometimes even by means of strength and not necessarily by a a desire to do something but by a strength that enabled them to submit to what they believed was the right thing to do under the circumstances. Use us as we depart from here. Bless us as we bless others. Especially those who have given us birth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is just as I am and we are going to sing three verses together this morning. Let's stand and sing.